Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Monday edition. Uh, a lot to get to on this mailbag of sorts podcast. Um, real quick, we want to mention um, there was big news. Like literally right before we hit record, uh, Nico has committed to Tennessee over Oregon as expected. So um, we'll have something maybe later this week just kind of discussing a little bit uh, uh, about what happens next for Oregon. But one of the questions we have in this podcast will also kind of address the ramifications of this commitment to Tennessee. So uh, real quick, I just wanted to mention that we we aren't going to touch too much on it, but it is out there. Yeah, it is. And um, I don't know how much we want to get into it because we got into it a lot last week, I think talking NIL, Um, but we all know where that stands. So let's jump into some questions, not NIL related guys, non NIL Monday mailbag podcast. Um, we're going to hit some spring football, some recruiting, and then talk, talk about some really disappointing basketball teams. Should be fun. All right. <laughs> First one from at Prince Puddles. Are there any major questions going into the second spring practice that you think will be answered by the end of the spring game, such as who QB one and two will be? What will the offensive scheme look like? How do the freshman cornerbacks affect the depth chart? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, let's, I'll just address all three of the questions that were thrown out here, and then maybe we can get to some other ones that we might have answers to or not. Um, I have very little confidence we'll have any idea of QB1 versus QB2. We'll yeah. have our probably our opinions, you know, just like I know Jared and I drew some pretty strong opinions on Ty Thompson versus Anthony Brown after a scrimmage last fall, um, but we won't really have a clear idea, I would wouldn't imagine about Bo Nix, Ty Thompson, Jay Butterfield from anything the coaches will say. It would be probably a disservice to everybody involved to end spring and say, this guy is the definitive number one. Maybe somebody will just completely outperform the rest and you go into fall with the, the conversation being kind of like it was in Tyler with Tyler Shuck back in 2020, where it's uh, Tyler's in the lead. Tyler's in a good spot. And actually even Anthony last year, Tyler Anthony's in, in the lead, but, but I don't think they're going to you know shut the door one way or the other. So I, I, I would, and, and that's pretty much just common practice across the country. You don't d- decide who your quarterback is going to be. If there's an open quarterback competition, typically until mid fall camp, maybe even right around first game. So I wouldn't anticipate that Prince puddles um, offensive scheme. I, that this is one I hope we have a much better idea of, um, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical. We'll see a whole lot of anything until the spring game. So whatever we see there will probably be, what will amount to whatever we know about their scheme. Um, I'm, it'll be no, certainly be more than we know now because I assume we're going to get an opportunity to watch them actually scrimmage and do plays and play football, yeah. and play football a little bit. Um, so I think we'll know more. Um, I would imagine we won't know all of it. And honestly, it would be probably a little bit concerning if we did know everything after one spring game. Um, and then to the third question, how do the freshman quarterbacks affect the depth chart? I think only Jaleel Florence is enrolling early. Um, I don't think Jaleel Tucker or Kamari Torre will be here. So I think we'll have one third of that puzzle. 
um, in place, but I, I don't think we're going to have a full idea of, of kind of how they impact things. And, and frankly, it might be a thing where Florence is really the only one who has a huge immediate impact because he was the only one to enroll early. Of course, that's not like a cut and dry rule. There are plenty of, you know, uh, situations in the past where people have enrolled in summer and fall and, and, and really played well there and, and played themselves into position um, to be key players. But um, Florence will be the only one here early as far as we know, unless something changes. Um, I'm trying to think of other questions we might have answers to. Some of the health stuff, I think, yep. right? I think that's mm -hmm. one thing that stands out is we're still, there's like almost half a dozen key defensive players that aren't practicing. I think we'll get some clarity there. Um, I think we'll probably get some clarity maybe by the second or third practice back. You know, maybe early April we'll have a little bit more idea on some of this. I don't expect Dan to come out and say, hey, this is what's going down. But I do think there will be some guys that were off to the side in the rehab group that will be either partial or full goes by the time we, we kind of hit the ground running mid-April. That was at least what Dan indicated. Um, I'm trying to think of other things. Jared, is there anything else that stands out that's a big question that you think we'll have some answers for? This for? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think just seeing what the defense runs is going to be really interesting to see. Just their their, their uh, rotations on the field as well. Just yeah. you know who's off, who's first or second off the pine. Um, you know how many linemen or down linemen are, are landing and Tosh Lupoy playing. Um, I think those are some pretty pretty easy questions right off the bat. I think, like you mentioned with with Bo Nix and Ty Thompson, the intricacies of who's starting and who's not starting probably won't be solved by the spring game, or at least won't be obvious to the crowd present, including all of us like up in the press box. Um, so I think those, those questions are going to be a lot harder to answer um, for, and then I'm, I'm looking for the offensive scheme as well. I think, you know, you talked about it, Eric, we're just, we haven't seen anything about that at all, like not even close in one of the spring practices. So obviously we'll get a chance to see that during the spring game because they will actually have to run a football play. And that's what I'm looking for on the defensive side of the ball too, is like, well, you guys actually have to line up all 11 of you this time. How is that going to look? And so that's what I'm, those are the two big questions. Um, and I don't really think you can ask the intricate ones just because it's still a spring game. And judging off of how this coaching staff has already started to work, they're not going to show what's what here. They're just going to try to keep it under wraps as much as possible until it. Um, uh, I want to look at the running back situation as well, see who's the true number one. I, I'm firmly in belief it's going to be Byron Cardwell. Maybe the coaching staff sees something in Sean Dollars. Maybe Aaron Smith gets more run. Um, I, think, I think for me, most of all, it's just about the rotations and who is your number one and then health. I just, I think just broad strokes because you guys covered a lot there. Um, I think for me, broad stroke wise, it's just to get a better feel of the pecking order of depth charts. Like mm -hmm. we feel like we know who maybe the three receivers are Hudson Thornton and Franklin, but what's the combination behind them? What, what, what kind of, uh, is it three receivers or is it more more like two that we see and we see two tight ends out there? Um, what is what is the linebacking order? You know, the pecking order at linebacker. You know, we've we've seen some guys move. Um, Jeffrey Bossa has stayed at inside linebacker. Adrian Jackson has moved to the inside um, from after playing outside uh, linebacker the last couple of seasons. Justin Flo should be back. Um, 
where where do these guys fit? You know, we we you know Devin Jackson and, and um, Harrison Taggart don't exactly expect them to be here for the full spring practice, if at all. But um, just I think there's a lot of questions for me of just it's a it's a year in which we don't have a lot of clarity one through three at a lot of positions. And that's not normally the case. We, we, we usually have a good idea of, Hey, this guy is the clear cut number one. And then this guy and, and this other guy are, are fighting for the two and three spots, or, you know, maybe the one job is open, but we know this guy definitely isn't going to be a starter. Um, he, he's going to maybe have to work his way up the depth chart. It feels like, there's across the board offense, defense, special teams, the sliding scale for where guys fit it is all over the place. Yeah, that's and even through two practices, we don't know a lot more than we knew before. I mean, I think really what we do what we know now is these guys are playing certain positions. Mm-hmm. And usually if we had a break after a first call practice, I would have put out an updated depth chart. I was intentional in not doing that because it would have been purely guesswork. I mean, I, I we now know as Matt said, where a couple guys are at linebacker, we've got a little bit of clarity about some players moving to secondary positions, but like there's really, the hierarchy is really up in the air. But I think the big thing we're going to learn guys is, and this is one that I'm always intrigued on, who's the kickoff specialist? Mm. Good point. Who's going to be that kickoff specialist? And that transitions right into our second question here from Matt Nash Duckaneer. Through spring practices so far, who has stood up the most on special teams? And who's returning kickoffs and punts? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, I want to say that we really haven't seen them do any live kicking, aside from some like straight up kicking the ball off a tee, off to the side stuff. Um, so kicking is pretty hard to get a, a handle on. Um, they were doing a lot of special team drills, which I think stood out early in practices. Um, but we did get some idea, and I know Jared's getting his notes ready, so I'm giving I'm kind of filibustering here until he's good. Jared, do you have your <laughs> Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. What's All right. Up? I'll throw it to you on who's been returning kicks and punts. Yeah, so far, we've only seen it happen just a few times um, for punt, punt returns. No kick returns that we've seen. Uh, it's literally just been Tom Snee and whoever else is the backup punter um, kicking to a couple players and fielding it in these boxing gloves. We kind of mentioned this on, the, on a previous podcast where obviously it makes it a lot more difficult to, to hold on to the ball. Um, with these gloves on. So as of today, what, what I saw was um, Chris Hudson, a punt returner, Seven McGee as punt returner, Sean Dollars as punt returner, and then Josh Delgado as a punt returner um, in that order. Um, so I, I'm sure that is always going to be subject to change. But just from the – this is from the second spring practice. Um, that to me is – whatever Oregon has going on right now. Um, Hudson and, uh, excuse me, Hudson and McGee as a number one and two number uh, guys are going to be, that's a pretty formidable little duo right there. Um, We, I like Chris Hudson's ability to, you know, maneuver through the ball. He's great agility. And then you can say the exact same thing about seven McGee. He's another one of those guys who has, you know, touchdown written all over him. If he breaks away into the open space, um, and I think him lined up at punt returner, who we saw at the end of the season last year, I think in the Pac-12 championship game, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly in the, in the Alamo Bowl against Oklahoma, um, 
you know, that's what fans have wanted to see all year. And I think that's going to come into fruition this year. But right now he's second on the depth chart. Um, and seeing Sean Dollars as the third option was really, really uh, intriguing as well. Uh, just to see that he's made a healthy comeback and, and is, you know, somebody that Lanning has seen that could return punts. And then uh, Just Elgato to finish it off as the, the fourth punt returner. Um, it's just good to see him get in, get really any type of action with, you know, potentially a starting role. Um, been around the program for a little bit. Didn't play last season at all, but for him to be participating in punt returns, that could be his niche, and he could find that this season. Can I pose a question to you, Matt? Who do who who would you like to see return punts of that group? Because I have an answer, but I'm curious mm-hmm. if you have one. No, I know that was not on the show notes, so I'm I'll, I'll again I'll filibuster a second, give you a second. I think I I think Chris Hudson. I, I think he's the guy I trust the most. I, I don't, and I'm assuming that's probably not the guy that you're thinking of. I am really intrigued by Seven McGee. I think maybe as a punt returner. I think okay, if I were if I, if I were devising this, and I'm not, and so uh, Joe Lorig, mm. you're, you're way smarter than me. I <laughs> I, I agree with kickoffs. I, I think I'd like to have Chris Hudson back there. He's already proven he can do it. For some reason I just think Seven McGee could be freaking awesome as a punt returner. Sure. Um, yep. How agile he is. Um. So that would be that would be where I would lean, um, and that's based on very little information. Like he's barely fielded any punts so far or kicks. But we always talk about not to change the subject here for a second, but um, we always talk about who's going to return kicks, who's going to return punts, and that's probably the, the one that I'm so fascinated with every year. But one that goes under the radar is who's that special teams like dog on coverage that just always makes plays. And I felt like that was Jeffrey Bossa this past year. Um, and maybe the, another question would be, does someone else emerge or is it Jeffrey Bossa again, kind of as your special teams ace? What was it a couple of years ago? Damon, uh, it wasn't Damon. David Davis would, yeah. would be all yeah. over the place. Um, a long time ago, I think it was Fotu Liatu who, who was um, all over the place making plays on kickoffs. Like we see, Hockey Woods was in there. Yeah, like we, we see teams guys is. that just like they don't play a ton, but they become really elite on coverage. And mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I I'm kind of curious to, to flip it to the defensive side. Who who steps into that role as well? I like that, Matt. I think that's a good question. And again, we're this is like basically we're making guesstimates here because similar mm-hmm. to Brunson, we don't have answers on this yet. But um, some names that I would like throw out there, and obviously, I, I think like there are some guys on offense that could fit this bill as well. I just don't know. Right. Like, do you really want to have some of your best receivers be gunners because right. there's a kind of a scarcity right now? Um, I, I I think. You look, I always look at safeties as guys who could kind of step in here. So a Damon David, I think, did actually play a little bit of special yep. team last year and had some nice moments. Jabril McNeil a year ago um, had some pretty good moments as a kickoff uh, coverage mm-hmm. guy. Um, obviously different body types. He's not a gunner, but, you know, a guy who gets downfield and kind of mix isn't afraid to mix it up. Um, I think Jaleel Florence would be awesome there uh, in terms of watching his athleticism and how that might translate. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple other guys. Like, could this be a spot? Like, Jonathan Flo might be a really good pick for this. Yeah. There you go. Jared's pointing at degrees. I'm thinking just because I don't see a direct path to the field, but typically a guy you see early on in his career be really good on these kind of kickoff situations is somebody who a year or two from now really steps up. And I don't really see a direct path for Jonathan to play 
right now. And maybe I'm overlooking him on defense, but I could see him being somebody with his athleticism, how hard of a hitter he is. Like exactly. he somebody that just depletes some dudes. Um, yeah. I like that question. That was the guy I thought of, and he doesn't, he doesn't fit the DB mold, but I think he was, I just keep going back to Ohio state and Brandon Buckner. Um, like, and I understand that some duck fans maybe don't like Mario Cristobal anymore, but I love how he called him a bowling ball of knives. Like <laughs> that's just like a perfect description of a, of a special teams ace. And I just look at him and think, I don't know how much he's going to play, you know, on the field, on defense, but seeing what he can do and the limited snaps that he did out of necessity because they just didn't have guys. Um, I just wonder, like, that that's one person I'm, I'm I guess, maybe rooting for to, to find a, a spot on that special team. I could see it. I'm going to go with, with somebody like a Jonathan Flo. Buckner to me is probably just a little too big of a of a human being, um, sure. despite the fact that he's only you know six one. Um, I mean, he plays outside linebacker, and I don't, and I think that he could do well on probably punt returns and punt coverage. Kickoff, you're just going to need guys who are just straight up faster than that down the field. Um, so I like I like the idea of Jonathan Flo. I like the idea of Kamari Terrell becoming a, a guy like that, literally just straight end yeah. speed, just run down the field as fast as you can and try to tackle somebody. Um, because that's exactly what Oregon's been missing on their special teams the last two years. Um, I know Jeffrey Basso was pretty good last year, but um, as we can all attest to of watching all the games and as plenty of Oregon fans can as well, special teams was a disaster for a long part of the year. And it has been for some time now with Oregon. And so, and I'll change the subject just for a brief second. Um, that's why I'm really enjoying seeing all these special team drills yeah. practice just immediately right off the bat after stretches they go right into special teams special teams and that's punt return that's kick return that's uh like pooch punt return that's like picking up bouncing balls on the sideline for onside kicks that's the kickers practicing the onside kicks hitting it to uh other ducks and like to see that come into play is huge because that was such a such a bad part of Oregon's teams the last few years that it needs to be addressed and it seems like this new staff is doing so. Um, but I digress. Uh, just going back to punt returners or excuse me, punt coverage guys. Um, somebody like a Jabril McNeil, Eric, like you mentioned, I think that would be a really good pick because um, he has good speed, but he's uh, a little bigger. Probably can you know lay a body or two or, or shed a block, something like that. Um, it's it's tough because I'd like to throw some wide receivers down there. Yeah, but they don't have enough, yeah. and you can't really risk injuring a wide receiver to make a tackle because that's just not their job. Um, so maybe it's going to be a cornerback because it seems like that's the position of speed that they have the most of at the current moment. Um, I could see Damon David in there, but there's a there's a thin line between where you play your starters and people who actually get into the game on special teams. And we haven't seen that from Lanning. We knew from Cristobal that he was just going to play the best guys out there no matter what. You know, we saw Johnny Johnson be gunners all the time. We saw Michael Wright be kick returners. You know, I, I don't know what Dan Lanning is going to do for this. Yeah, just- One thing Jerry brought up with just he, he loves all the special teams drills and stuff. 
I love all the special teams analyst hires. Like mm-hmm. they've made two or three now that guys have clear backgrounds in special teams. Um, you know, Gregory from Washington, the interim head coach who replaced Jimmy Lake. Like I realize he was D coordinator for a while. Um, he coached other positions, but I think his bread and butter has always been special teams. And to I, you can say what you want about the state of Washington last season. Um, but the fact that you have a guy that was an interim head coach that was a, a special teams coordinator for a good chunk of time on your staff has an analyst, like that's money in the bank right there. I, I just had a couple more thoughts because I didn't realize we we're going to do so much special teams talk. And this is, <laughs> I love this. Um, I think what was, what was frustrating a year ago, was that you had actually really high-end specialist play. Like like Tom Snee has been like pretty quietly at 43 yard per punt average, yeah. which if you go look at the history of Oregon punting is like up there with the best since 2000, um, which is kind of sad to be honest, because he was still like sixth in the conference and we're like, that's an outlier from the comp- like from a program perspective. And Camden Lewis was second team all conference and was really, I mean, I know he missed a couple towards the end of the season, but it was really reliable. And so you had, uh, you know, for years, Oregon was really good in kickoff coverage and his returns because they had so much team speed, but it was the punting and place kicking that really bit Oregon in big moments. I mean, I don't want to get down to too many dark things, but the name Alejandro Maldonado might stick out as a, maybe not a favorite name for many of those listening here. Um, But like to actually have good punting and have good place kicking, but then really struggle in the other part, which has been a strength for so long, I think for me was a little bit underwhelming and disappointing because team speed shouldn't be a shortcoming and special teams shouldn't be an area where you're getting blown off the line or, you know, beaten downfield often. Um, And that was just the case for the last couple of years. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, both Snee and Lewis are back. They continue to perform at the level they have in the past and you get just improvements in special teams and coverage and in return games, like Oregon could actually be one of the better special teams programs um, in the Pac-12. And one thing I'm also curious on, to going back to a point you 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 brought up, Jared, uh, you know, coaches vary in terms of how they want to utilize personnel on coverage teams. Some teams, some are just want to use walk-ons and reserves. They don't want to risk the starters. Yeah, Mario kind of towards the end tried to move. I think out of necessity, it's trying to get some of the more blue blood players out there. I'm curious to see what Dan Landing's approach will be with that. I think that will be kind of telling for how much they value special teams because. You know, for my money, you probably if, if you really are serious about improving special teams, you need your best athletes out there. And, and for the most part, your best athletes are guys that are in the first or second team offense or defensive categories. All right, let's take a quick break. We come back. We'll wrap up the uh, second half of this mailbag edition. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, You transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. 
there's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Uh, halfway through this this one, and we'll go through the next uh, couple questions and see how much more special teams we can devote to the podcast. Mm. I, love it. I don't think we'll say special teams again after i just said it now um unless unless you're gonna throw some punting recruiting news at our our way because the next one is a recruiting question from at quack attack 74 who do y'all think will be the next few to commit for the 2023 class in football hashtag aughts and audibles matt uh there have been some crystal ball action in oregon's favor as well as some not in their favor uh do you have a kind of a, a list of guys you think are worth knowing right now yeah, well, I think the fact that um, Nico committed to Tennessee, that that's a domino that's going to have a rippling effect across the country for a bunch of other schools because along with um, Nico and Arch Manning, a lot of these other quarterbacks have been kind of waiting to see where they go before they make their decision. And I think now that Oregon knows that Nico's not coming officially um, – and it's interesting that they ended up offering Eli Holstein, a quarterback from Louisiana. Dillingham certainly was on Twitter promoting um, Jaden Rashada. Um, I, I think you look at Rashada and say, like, hey, this, this might happen. I'm not going to say here in the next week, two weeks, but it wouldn't be a surprise to me if Jaden Rashada is one of the next quarterbacks to fall. Uh, and I would think – and if I'm Oregon, I would hope that they're in that position of, of strength there where they can maybe elevate themselves to, to being the, the, the top school for the five-star quarterback. Um, other names in the 2023 class, I, I think receiver Kyle Casper, he's certainly one, um, a four-star guy from the state of Arizona that Oregon's in a really good position with. He's been to Oregon a couple times in like a six-week span, seven-week span. Um, supposed to be coming back again here close to the spring game. Um, Jaden Wayne, five-star defensive end, defensive lineman. Don't know if he's necessarily going to decide relatively soon, but I've been considering a crystal ball the last couple of weeks. I haven't done it yet. Um but I just think he's, he loves Oregon. He's been here a couple times. He's coming back again for the spring game. I think things are going in the right direction there. And then maybe just a long-term one, Miles Rushing, 2024 prospect. Uh, that would be another guy I could maybe see pull the trigger early. From the state of Arizona, one of the best defensive linemen in the country. Spring game attendance is always telling. Yeah. And I think we'll have a better, more clarity on all of who will be there for that. But – Another thing is, as you said, a couple of these recruits just have been here several times already. Mm-hmm. And, if you're, and that's it's one thing if you're, um, you know, Riley Williams or something and you're from 
Portland and you can just drive down for a day. It's another thing if you're coming from Arizona and you have to get on a flight. Um, I think like a Kyle Casper, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm really high on Jurian Dickey as well. I know um, mm. he also received a recent crystal ball from, yep. uh, I think that was Steve Wolfong. Correct me if I'm wrong. Or is that Greg? Yeah. Um, I Dickey was somebody who really stood out at last year's Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Big bodied, like kind of Anquan Bolden like kind of mm -hmm. type, or if you want to go Oregon, like a Josh Huff body type sort of thing. Um, I find him really intriguing and honestly would be somebody that would probably be really interesting to see fit in kind of the scheme we're expecting here where the idea seems to be one-on-one -on -one matchups and you get a guy like that where he can run around or through defensive back I would imagine that would be pretty attractive in whatever Dan or uh, well Dan and Kenny are, are planning for the offense just uh in case you guys wanted to know the number one punter or kicker in the country is currently committed to Michigan so Oregon's going to have to pull a lot of strings to get him. His name's Adam <laughs> Zamaha, who's from Ann Arbor, Michigan. So they're really going to have to pull a lot of strings for him. Um, I To, to go on uh, real recruiting now. Uh, hey, Specialists are real too, Jared. Come on, don't real. <laughs> so I've heard, yeah. Um, Jurion Dickey is, is a guy. Um, I've been in love with the way he plays ever since that Saturday Night Live camp. Um, I, honestly, his performance in that Saturday Night Live camp reminded me of another wide receiver, a current duck in Dante Thornton, who had an outstanding performance in Saturday Night Live in 2019, I believe it was. Um, that was impressive then, and this performance from Dickey in this year's past camp was also as equally as impressive. He was just arguably the best player of the day. He was certainly the best wide receiver of the day, and that was a, a group that was deep for uh, you know the last Saturday Night Live under Mario Cristobal. Um, and I think it's a really good thing to see that he's you know coming back multiple times unofficially and you know ultimately uh, for an official visit his senior year. Um, I think he's a different type of body type than what Oregon has on their current roster in terms of receivers. Um, I think he's somebody that can fill out a frame a little different than a Troy Franklin or a Dante Thornton can. And I think that'd be really impactful for Oregon's wide receiver room. Um, for quarterbacks, yeah, well, Nico's, uh, Nico's gone, so that's not a great start for that. Um, that leaves, you know, three of the top five quarterbacks in the country committed. Excuse me, two of the top five. Arch Manning has still yet to commit. Um, but Jaden Rashada, like Matt, like you were mentioning, um, I, 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 would, I would agree that Oregon's going to turn all of their attention to him now. It just seems like the most logical choice They've had him on campus. He's from Pittsburgh, California, which is a Northern California school. Um, USC is not going to be recording another quarterback of Malachi Nelson uh, with Caleb Williams already on the roster. If they did, that'd be just overkill. You know, two guys would end up in the portal, which usually happens. But um, Arch Manning is, who knows, he's probably going to end up at Bama just like the rest of them. But Oregon's also had Dante Moore visit, but he's from Michigan, which is going to be, you know, a tougher – a tougher task than it would be to recruit all after Jaden and Rashada. Um, and Rashada's no slouch in his own right. You know, top five quarterback, five-star recruit. Um, he would be an absolutely prized, you know, possession of this class if Oregon were to land him. Um, and I think they, they turn on the Jets for his services because, yeah, for, for Kenny Dillingham and for Dan Lanning in their first full recruiting cycle as Oregon Duck coaches, um, to land a prospect of that nature would certainly send a message to – yeah, the rest of the Pac-12 and 
for the defensive side of Jaden Wayne, if Oregon were to land that type of player on the defensive side, it would send a message to the, to the conference that, hey, we're going to recruit both sides of the ball here. And this is going to be you know, a lot of fun for us and maybe not a lot of fun for everybody else. Should know, I mean, it's very minor detail, but I, I think the Southwest Airline getting a spot into Eugene has been a game changer. Um, it, it's one of the cheaper airlines out there and it gets you everywhere. And they have really, I, I, I've, I've talked to a couple people about it and it it's opened up, I think, quick access. Hey, get up here real quick for an unofficial visit and you can do it really, relatively quickly. Um, those are just minor things that I don't think the average person even considers um, in the scope of college football recruiting. It's just the accessibility of your school. And it's, 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 it's opened Eugene up to a lot of other areas in the country uh, for a cheap rate. That's a good one. Um, and I hate that I'm doing this, but I'm going to, cause we're going to talk special teams so much today. Does here's a big question is Dan Lanning and company. Are they, do they like scholarship long snappers? Because Ooh. do you use one this year? Carson battles is in his final year. Yep. Um, you've got Luke Basso as your walk on backup. But do they go find a, a scholarship long snapper? Oregon actually historically has used a scholarship on its long snappers. So I will be intrigued to see what they go there. I don't know if they need to use one on a place kicker or a punter just yet because both Camden and, and Tom have a little more eligibility remaining. But um, it would be interesting to see where they go that route. And I know that's I'm adding a little levity here because I know people don't really want to ask about you know special teams recruiting. But Jared introduced the subject. So we're, uh, we're going to do a little – we did a little bit there. All right. Last one from the show, it's all basketball, um, from at ZBGreen1. Is this the most disappointing team in the Dana Altman era, given the number of high-profile recruits and reputable transfers? And the second, why has the talent on the women's team not lived up to the hype? In parentheses, he writes, Parrish and Shear were top 20 recruits, which is crazy to me. Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, I want to say, I, I do want to, before we get into this, I want to note that we're going to devote full podcasts to kind of reviewing both seasons um, and kind of looking at what the off season will hold. So we will do much more in-depth podcasts later this week, early next week on, on each program. Um, but just some initial thoughts, I guess, on these uh, programs, Matt, let's start with the men since that was the first question. It's like, for me, it's, it's this year or it's the year after the final four, the Troy Brown, Peyton Pritchard year. I think it's this year. Yeah. Um, I, you, you went to the final four and and you lost four starters. You lost your sixth man in Casey Benson. Um, you lost Chris Boucher as well. Um, who ended up, maybe he was the sixth man, mm -hmm. but that, that was a team that, you know, just completely gutted and your most experienced player was a sophomore. Like that, that's scary. This year's team they brought back a starter in Will Richardson, who had been part of two Sweet 16 teams, two team, you know, one team that won the conference, you know, as a sophomore. Um, Eric Williams was back from a Sweet 16 team, uh, was a starter on that Pac-12 championship squad. Um, you you look at um, the additions of Quincy Guerrier, Jacob Young, and Devion Harmon, all starters for tournament teams the year before and were kind of, they weren't necessarily the guy at any of those schools, but they were 
one of the guys at those schools. And so I think you look at just everything that was in place, the talent was there, uh, the experience was there, and it just never clicked. And I, I think ironically enough, it's maybe because they didn't have uh, a Jalen Terry or an Aaron Estrada. Um, you know, they, they lack the guard, they lack the glue guy, not, you know, some starter from the S, you know, from a, from a ACC a Syracuse team um, transfer. They, they didn't have uh, enough guards and they didn't have enough shooting. Dan Altman talked about that after the Texas A&M game, that, that their shooting was not you know, where it needed to be all season long. And I just think it was a, it, it, this is the year in which no one should lose their jobs for it, but there's definitely a bad taste in their mouth where, wow, they did not live up to expectations. Because to be frank, this was a team that should have been playing this week in the NCAA tournament, in the Sweet 16. Yeah, this- yeah yeah, I got a couple of things. Um, yeah, extremely disappointing. I don't think it really is close uh, in terms of like that 2017 season with Elijah Brown and Peyton Pritchard and Kyle McIntosh. Um, I thought that team was probably underachieving as well, considering like the talent that they brought in for sure. Um, I think this team was a lot different. I think Matt, Matt outlined the roster roster uh, turnover and brought bringing the new transfers pretty well. But, you know, you had yourself just lined up. You had Will Richardson, Eric Williams, and Nafali Dante and Frank Kepnong returning. You bring in all your transfers. You bring in Nate Biddle, who's a five-star freshman. Um, this You bring in Rivaldo Soares, too. It was a team that you looked, and you know, I can remember thinking about it before the season, and you look at it, you're like, wow, there are 10 or 11 players on this roster that I would like to see play. And if they're playing, I'm okay with that, seemingly. Um, that might have been an issue. I think this is a thing that we've talked about with Dana Allman teams in the past. Um, they might have too many guys at points. And to kind of like draw some, some parallels in basketball here, um, the Celtics, I know. Let's hold on. Celtics in the last 25 games are 21 and 4, which is great. But besides the point, they have cut down their rotation. They've gone from a 10-man rotation, 11-man rotation, where they just put in minutes for people who don't really deserve it, down to eight people. It's the three guys off the bench, and that's it. And Peyton Pritchard is now one of them. Um, he's been fantastic. But I think that's an issue with Dana Altman team sometimes, is that there are too many players on the bench. There are too many players who want a piece of the pie. And in order for Altman to keep these guys happy, he has to play them or else they might transfer, which is totally their decision in the end of the day. But if, if but a team like that 2016 team, you know, Dana cut that roster down towards the end of the season. He played a lot of people, but, he, you know, he, uh, before the Chris Boucher injury, you know, Cavell Bigby Williams did not get as many minutes as he, as he, as he did earlier in the year. Uh, you know, Casey Benson had an increased role. Um, he trimmed the roster down and the minutes allocated to them. And I think he's had an issue with that, especially this year, because there's a lot of different types of players that he had to play. You know, he, he has to play Nate Biddle because he has this, all this potential on him. Isaac Johnson is just a true, there's just a freshman. He's finally back from his mission trip. You got to get those guys minutes, but then you also have all the transfers who are used to playing 25 to 30 minutes at their respective school. I just think it was a number crunch issue. A lot of the times, the poor shooting, um, the lack of continuity on defense. 
I think there are a lot, a lot of issues with this program this season. But like Matt said, it's not anything to get in for anybody to get fired over. It's just they got a clean house some way or somehow. Maybe it's a total change in philosophy. Maybe it's not. Uh, I think it, it's just it was a disappointing season no matter what. And Matt's right. They should have been playing this week or this weekend. They, the, the best teams – at Oregon, and I don't think it's just exclusively to Oregon because Jared is right about the rotations. Like one team that I remember that was just absolutely stacked um, was the 2014 team. Um, yeah. The one that had Joe Young as a junior, had Mike Moser, Jason Calise, mm-hmm. Damian Dotson, Jonathan Lloyd, Elgin Cook, you know, Dominic Artis. It, you just go down the list and – I mean, they had that was a team that had way too many players, that too many guys to, to please, and it kind of stunted its growth, the team's growth a little bit. And they still made the tournament. They almost knocked off the number one seed, Wisconsin Badgers, uh, in Milwaukee. Um, but I go back to maybe the best team Oregon's had recently since the Final Four, and that's Peyton Pritchard's senior year, the nineteen twenty team. Um, one I think that was going to be a two, three, maybe a four seed at worst case scenario um, had the tournament been played. Um, they were really good. They, they dominated the Pac-12. And they had a team where it was, hey, their five starters played a majority of the minutes. You know, they had three guys over 30 minutes per game. Peyton Pritchard, Chris Duarte, and Will Richardson all played over 30 minutes. And then they had another one in Shakur Juson who almost played 30. He played 28. And then Anthony Mathis uh, and Chandler Lawson kind of shared a, a, a starting role. Um, and, you know, Mathis played 24, Lawson played 20, about 20 minutes, 19 and a half minutes. Um, and then the next closest guy was Francis Socorro at 17. And there were other guys that played double digit minutes, but it, you saw the clear divide. It was, hey, these are our main seven guys. We're going to play these seven in crunch time. And when we can get these two guys onto the, onto the floor because the score dictates it or maybe fouls dictate it, we'll do it. But we're going to roll with these this main group of seven. And I thought it was interesting. This isn't any kind of in, in, in indicator of Will Richardson at all. But I thought it was interesting that you remove one guy from the rotation um, and we did see some of the better basketball. I mean, Oregon State, they played a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they had a lead against Colorado, like an eight point nine point lead in that uh, quarterfinal game in the Pac twelve tournament, and then they just went dry cold offensively. Utah State was a phenomenal game from from them, uh, and then Texas A and M happened. But the rotation lost a guy, and yet I it the impact wasn't nearly as bad as I was maybe anticipating it to be. And against Utah State, they also didn't have Dante, so they lost two guys, yeah. and that yeah. was as you said, maybe one of their best performances in the last five weeks of the season or so. Um, let's finish with some women's basketball talk. Uh, you know, the question's interesting about not living up to the hype. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to it. Um, I think, honestly, a lot of what we just talked about on the men's side applies to the women's side, too, in terms of trying to please maybe too many players. Uh, I mean... <laughs> crazy thing on the women's side is they literally have like a rotation of just five-star recruits, you know, I mean, they have eight or nine players that were that caliber of player coming out of high school. Um, and maybe that's not tenable. Maybe that's a lesson to learn. 
Uh, or maybe it has to do more with some of the stuff that Kelly Graves got into, which is, I think, somewhat similar to what Dana said after their NIT loss, which was talking about lack of leadership. Um, Kelly Graves used the word a sense of entitlement. Um, you know, the players kind of feeling like they, they maybe were deserved more than than what they'd earned. Um, I think that stuff definitely factors in. I think psychologically this team clearly lacked maybe that alpha. That was a term that Kelly used as well, that they didn't have one of those. I mean, that he wanted to be clear that there were players that showed leadership qualities, but there was no Sabrina. And, of course, to suggest someone's going to be a Sabrina is really uh, – it's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, you're not going to fulfill yeah. that. And, I mean, and part of me also goes like – they, this group was asked to live up to some pretty high expectations because the last time we saw Oregon women's basketball coming into the 2020-21 season was they were going to win a national championship and that got taken away. And so there was this feeling and a sense that this program was going to kind of stay there. I don't think that was really a reasonable expectation, even though a lot of people felt that way, including probably myself to a certain degree. Um, got a little spoiled with the way these teams had played. That does not mean that they this group played well, though. I mean, it's, this was a disappointing season, I think, from everybody. They went 20 and 12, again, a roster with a ton of talent. Um, I think another thing that stands out with just a couple of these players is they're they're very one-dimensional. Um, like, Sydney Parrish is a really good three-point shooter, and if she's not, she doesn't bring a lot to the table. I don't want to be too harsh on, on Sydney because I do think she's a very capable and uh, you know, of contributing, but like if she's not hitting her three-point shot, it, it it wasn't great. And Maddie Shear is a fantastic defensive player, but really not much of anything on offense aside from a distributor and kind of moving the ball. Um, you know, Kylie Watson is another one of those five-star recruits, and, and kind of she brought some energy and and some shot blocking and, and some defense off the bench, but not much of an offensive player. Um, Nina Pow Pow, probably your most well-rounded of that group, I think is still a little bit one-dimensional in terms of she's a scoring first guard who's not a great distributor and you look at what kelly graves offenses have been the best they've had you know like gonzaga courtney vandersloot who really distributes uh, sabrina unescu who really distributes i might take azorla who helps there um mm -hmm. i just think a lot of these pieces didn't quite fit what you needed and most of these five stars were are a little bit kind of one note players um and i hope to see some there's obviously room for improvement like maddie shear should live in the gym and work on her three-point shot sydney Parrish should work on you know agility and improving defensively um, and maybe on, on on her way to score, not as a spot up shooter, because I think that was pretty limited in terms of what she could do. Um, you know, I think Tahina has a lot of things to work on. Kylie the same way, and other players I haven't even mentioned do as well. Um, I, I just think I look at this group and go, you know, the five star part of this, and this is the part where I just think you have to objectively look at both the men's and the women's program as in the five star recruits that they've had, like most of them haven't really hit for either program. Like I remember recently going through and looking at the men's five stars on 247 that got the all-time commit list. And it's like, what, two or three of them have been pretty productive college players. And a lot of them just didn't do much anything. Um, and on the women's side, you've got Sabrina, who obviously was fantastic. You had Aaron Boley, who had some really great seasons. Tahina, I'm not going to say a disappointment. I think a lot of these players have shown moments, but like collectively, yeah, it's been a little underwhelming considering the recruiting rankings. I think, um, and I think maybe you just have to have that understanding going forward because Oregon is going to continue to recruit top players, and they're not going to hit all of them. Um, now you got to hope someone like Chance Gray comes in and can contribute right away as a five star, as the tied with Sabrina as the best recruit Oregon has signed, um, and that she's going to be the, an alpha maybe. 
But I also don't think you can put that expectation that she has to be that because otherwise you're setting yourself up for disappointment, which is frankly kind of what I think has happened a little bit here. And I, I will fault myself a bit for the Fab Five kind of nomer that became a misnomer um, with that 2021 recruiting class where the sense was, um, or 2020 recruiting class, where the sense was these are all five stars that are going to be amazing. And then, I mean, collectively, Tahina's been pretty good, and Maddie and Sydney have had good moments, but it's has been fairly disappointing. So I, I guess I'm, I'm going to try to learn from this as somebody covering the team of like, let's not <laughs> let's hold those collective horses a little bit before we jump to too much. I know I ranted for a while there, but if you guys have any other thoughts, we can we can get into those. I just I, you you summed it up perfectly for me. In the games that I've watched Oregon, the women's side this year, I don't feel like they have anyone that's really good at more than one thing. Um, and that's what made these the final four team and the year after so special was you had multiple not only did you have one player that was really elite at more than one skill, you had multiple guys or mul- multiple girls that could do it. Um, Satu was a unicorn that could defend, could rebound, could score. Um, Ruthie was a terrific rebounder and low post scoring option. And we don't need to go into what Sabrina could do because it was everything. Um, does Oregon, does, does the women's team have one of those players where, hey, this person is an absolute lockdown elite defender and on the other end of the floor is a sniper from the corner as a, as a three and D wing? Or th- do they have an elite interior defender who also is an elite scorer with the basketball? Like, I, I just – I don't know if they have that. Niara, well, Niara the, towards the end of the year was the closest thing, but, re, but I, I collectively agree that it was – you're pretty limited. Go ahead, Jared. Well, I was going to say that was the, – the plan that Matt just outlined was the plan for most of these players. Your defensive you – know, your dominant defensive player was Maddie Shear. It just so happens that her offense never came around. Your 3 and D sharpshooter it was supposed to be Sydney Parrish. Well, the sharpshooting sometimes happens in the defense – probably doesn't happen as often as you want. Your rim protecting inside low post score, well, they might have two of them, three of them on the roster in Sedona Prince, Niara Sable, and Kylie Watson. The outline was there. The The players who Kelly Graves and company thought could easily just come in and replace Sabrina, Satu, and Ruthie, you know, he recruited those players. He had an idea, maybe not a Sabrina Unescu type, a true you know, ball handler, point guard, controller of the offense. Maybe that recruit wasn't there. But everybody else, in terms of what he would like on a team, you know, he recruited players who seemingly out of high school fit that mold. It just hasn't come. Oh, no. Am I back? There you are. Hey, buddy. Sorry. Um. I was saying this team, you know, obviously it was really disappointing because you do look at their roster and they're full of talent. It's just really hard to replace three of like some of the top players of all time who all played on the same team at the same time for multiple years. Um, That's difficult. It's hard. I mean, you look at how the men's team has tried to replace Peyton Pritchard. It hasn't gone so well. Um, But that being said, this team still has some uh, plenty of issues on their roster already. Um, I think it's capable of, of 
replicating its or not replicating, but replacing itself in terms of offseason training and things like that. I think all of these players can get better, uh, and I think they will get better. Uh, I'm not sure if all of them will be at Oregon for the time for the time being. There could be a transfer portal member or two. There could be people on the transfer portal coming to Oregon. Um, it'll just be a matter of time until then. Um, regardless, I think they have the pieces in place. And when this team fired on all cylinders, they were one of the better teams in the country. During that stretch where they, you know, they won 9 of 10 and 9 of 11 games, they looked like one of the better teams in the country. It just so happened that the first half of the, the first quarter of the season, they were marred by injury and they lost their three best players. So it started off slow. It got hot. But like the men's team, they peaked at the wrong time. And, you know, it doesn't do you any good when you're peaking in January. You know, the season, the postseason isn't in January. It's March for a reason. And, you know, it's just like the men's team. They just couldn't hold that that same energy and that charisma that they had during that stretch run. Um, what that was from, I don't know, kind of remains to be seen. Maybe they finally just ran into teams that were more competitive than they were they just were as good as, or they were better than they thought they were. And they just kind of got down on their own selves. But and I think it's, it's similar to the men's team where I think a lot of things need to be, you know, kind of taken out and thrown away and new things need to be brought in. Um, again, don't think it's a fireable offense, any of these things, but it's just something where you might have to reevaluate or reassess what's going on. I, just, I, I think it's safe to assume both programs are going to have, some roster departures. Dan Altman himself even teased days he by after the A and M loss, saying like he he fully expects some guys to kind of consider going to the portal, um, and it might it might be for the better of the program too if, if some guys transfer out and some ladies transfer out. Yeah, I was just gonna say we can wrap it here, but the the women have to if you do the scholarship math. Um, they have 13 on this year's roster. Duffus is the only one for sure gone. Niara probably gone, by the way. She's come out and kind of said she hasn't made her mind up. I assume we might hear that by the next time we record a podcast. She has to kind of make a decision pretty quick. But um, but even if you take both of them off, that still is putting you right at 15. And I, you don't actually typically get to 15 in women. You usually hover in the 13, 14 range. So um, I, I would anticipate not going to name names like Matt won't name names. I would anticipate there will be some turnover um, that takes place. And we've seen that every off season. I mean, last year we saw three to four play tra players transfer. I wouldn't be stunned if it's, if it's similar, obviously there's some core players that you kind of need to have stick around, but there might be some, some spots where a player or two leaves and it's not the worst thing for everybody. Yeah. Well, we'll cover more on the men and the women. Uh, we'll devote an entire podcast to both as a season wrap up. And look ahead to just the off season of questions um, at a later time, but uh, we'll have also some more stuff coming out this week, more discussion of spring football. Uh, maybe we'll get with Jared now that he's back to get an update on some Oregon baseball. They continue to, to, to win, which is a good thing. Um, this program needs it. So until the next one, you're listening to the odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.